we're not charging for any of those interactions. We really want to only charge for what we consider value, which is when the student and patient truly connect and have an interaction. So to answer your question directly, we charge the client. The patients don't pay anything. And then the students, we do a revenue share with the student. So whatever the agreement is with the client per interaction, the students get a little bit more than half of that. And, and we take a small uh, percentage of that as well. How can a shortage of medical providers and a lack of access to quality healthcare be solved by the creation of a trained and vetted clinical student workforce? Let's talk all about it with Eric Alvarez, the CEO and founder of Grapefruit Health, right here on episode 409 of The Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. This podcast is about you and your personal and professional development, your nursing career, and the healthcare system in the bigger picture. And I'm here to share education, ideas, informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, nursing, entrepreneurship, and beyond. I love having you along for the ride. And I thank you from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. And guess what? You can now get CEUs by listening to podcasts. That's right. Over at rnegade.pro, that's R-N-E-G-A-D-E.pro. They're building a library of nursing podcasts offering continuing education for you. And you know what? Since you're listening anyway, you might as well get credit for it and earn some affordable CEUs. So head over to rnegate.pro, log in, select me or any other content creator from the drop-down menu and get CEUs because you happen to be listening anyway. And it's a fun way to earn continuing education. And if you'd like to help other people find the show, you can leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, or just share the show with other people. I appreciate that so much if you would consider doing me a solid and helping me out in that regard. You can head over to nursekeith.com to find the show notes for this episode. But actually, honestly, the show notes will be in any app where you happen to listen, and there'll be links so you can check out today's guest and his amazing company. So like I said, we are here with Eric Alvarez. He's the CEO and founder of Grapefruit Health at grapefruithealth.com. And Eric, it's great to have you here. And like I said just a moment ago, we're looking at solving the problem of lack of access to quality healthcare and a shortage of medical providers, all sorts of medical providers all over the United States right now. And you came up with this pretty interesting and really fascinating idea. So can you explain what Grapefruit Health is about and how you came up with this really cool notion? Yeah, absolutely. You know, first of all, thank you so much for 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 having me. Um, the the concept be, behind Grapefruit Health is exactly what you said. the The U.S. healthcare system is going to be short by 3.2 million healthcare workers by the year 2026, and we actually see that number getting quite a bit uh, worse. And so, when we were exploring what solutions were out there and how could we go about solving this problem, we saw things like like recruiters and and travel nursing and staffing platforms. And I think those all have you know value in their own uh, in their own way in their own right. However, they do drive the transition of employment. And I think a lot of times when you do that, you reduce productivity, and those services all come with a premium. So it drives up cost. So when we were exploring this, we thought, what could we do? So we came up with the idea of creating really the first and only workforce that's composed completely of and only of clinical students who we recruit, train, and manage to perform work for healthcare organizations remotely. We uh, define a clinical student as anyone pursuing clinical education, to your point, um, anything from a medical assistant to a medical doctorate, we do tend to work mostly with nursing students to do this type of work. Um, and we could talk a little bit more about what we're doing for these healthcare organizations uh, as well. But a majority of the time, the students, um, they log into our HIPAA compliant platform around their schedule, right? So students are extremely busy and, and their schedules uh, are not consistent. So it's really hard for them to go find maybe a nine to five type job. So from, from as long as they're in a HIPAA compliant environment, they log in, they click a button that says generate an interaction. 
And we match them to patients based off of the languages that the student speaks, their culture, their proximity to the patient's home address. So we can really have this high fidelity, uh, high trust kind of conversation right off the bat. Um, and we're, you know, we can do things like uh, getting patients in for their mammograms and colonoscopies, getting them scheduled for those uh, things like post-discharge follow-up from the, from the, for lower acuity patients coming out of the ED, for example, um, program enrollment, getting patients enrolled in, in things like diabetes prevention programming or weight loss or other community um, uh, services. So that's just a short list, but um, in general, that's what we're doing today. That's really fascinating. So I want to dial into a bunch of different aspects of this. So what was the number of millions of providers you said we're going to see a shortage of by 2026? The the last figure coming out of uh, some of the associations was 3.2 million, uh, but it's trending upwards. I think the, the re- when they revisit that number, I think it's going to be quite a bit higher. Okay. And when they say 3.2 million providers, is that like any type of medical provider whatsoever? Like PT, MD, RN, et cetera? It is. Yeah, it's across all the disciplines. It's across all disciplines. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we have this huge need and this shortage, and we know that lack of access to care is a huge issue. And it's not just an issue in rural areas. I mean, it's an issue in cities and suburbs and exurbs or whatever they call them now, right? So <laughs> it's across class, it's across race, it's across socioeconomic issues and barriers, right? So one of the questions I have, well, I have so many questions for you. (laughs) The first question is, you know, let's look at nursing students for a second. They might enter clinical training maybe in the second semester of school you know, an associate program and, and then in bachelor's program, it's a little different, but generally they have a little bit of book learning and study and didactic training, and then they go into clinical. At what point in a nurse's, a nursing student's educational process, are they basically, from your point of view, ready to take part in Grapefruit Health's um, efforts? Yeah, it's a great question. We uh, today we require that they've done one clinical rotation, um, and that they have a, a relatively high GPA. So that tells us that they are uh, able to perform well at school, and that this isn't going to take them uh, away or have some sort of negative uh, impact on their GPA if they're if they're already a little bit behind. But we do require that they've done one clinical rotation. It, it allows us, it lets us know that they've at least um, gotten some of that uh, patient communication skill set. Um, that that that's there. That being said, the student interest we have today is so so high, far higher than our the demand on on the on the getting the interaction side that we could be pretty pretty selective, and so that's why we're requiring some of those things today. I see. So one clinical rotation does it matter what the clinical rotation was? It does not um, in that in that sense. Okay, so it could have been a home health rotation or cardiology or whatever. Okay, exactly right. Okay, what about um, what about licensed practical nurses and medical assistants? Are you looking at them, and are they involved in this right now, or is it more RN focused? Yeah, because our platform does actually pay the students pretty well. Uh, we do have some um, students that already have some of that licensure that are doing a level up. Right. So they're moving from uh, an ASN to a BSN, maybe or an LPN to a, an RN. And so they are really excited about this platform and they're performing that work. We don't do licensed care. We don't have an NPI. We're not uh, billing insurance companies for the work that we're doing. And so they're not they're not leveraging those licenses per se. But our patients and our clients certainly benefit from having somebody with that kind of experience uh, performing the work, maybe over even over a student. I see. Uh, a, full, uh, a student, a student without a license, I should say. So LPNs, medical assistants. So it is possible to bring in those students as well. Um, yeah. Speaking of money, so you're paying them for this. Who pays for the service? Like, is it is it a medical practice that's paying you to kind of provide them with this this um, support service? So we actually sell to uh, healthcare systems, 
and other provider organizations as uh, as well, including you know big safety net organizations, community health organizations, but really provider groups, and then on the on the other side, the uh, to insurance companies. And so the way that we bill is we we charge per successful interaction. So if a student uh, attempts to call a patient and they don't answer the phone or it's a wrong phone number, and, and sometimes even uh, we reach a, a family member and the patient's actually deceased. Uh, and that the data is sort of just behind, we're not charging for any of those interactions. We really want to only charge for what we consider value, which is when the student and patient truly connect and have an interaction. So to answer your question directly, we charge the client. The patients don't pay anything. And then the students, we do a revenue share with the student. So whatever the agreement is with the client per interaction, the students uh, get a little bit more than half of that. And and we take a small uh, percentage of that as well. What's in it for the students is one, they can make some money while they're in school, right? Mm-hmm. And then they get this kind of extra opportunity to interact with patients. And my assumption is they can put this on their resume. Yeah, exactly right. So the students are making uh, anywhere between 15 and $25 actually an hour. Uh, keep in mind, they're paid as contractors. So the they're not getting necessarily, you know, fringe benefits and things. And so the comp- the actual dollar compensation is higher um, on there. They get an awesome, as you said, great resume building experience. Um, as long as they hit a certain threshold, we can act as references for them. They're able to put it on their, on their uh, resume um, to do that type of work. Okay. And my, all sorts of questions come up. Like I understand why you came up with this idea like why now if someone asked you why now i mean you said those millions and millions of providers who were going to be short actually we're already short aren't we yeah short on many levels yeah exactly exactly right and so because of the shortage and uh something i didn't share uh is that i'm on faculty at at rush university medical center here in um, in Chicago, I sit on adjunct faculty. I've been working with students for a long time and hearing from them how desperate they are for clinical experience is also part of the why now. So I, so on the on the the world of healthcare, we're all short by lots of staff. These students really want to work. <laughs> they really want to learn. they want to they want to earn income. they they want to get out there. They have time between classes and in these 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 random chunks of time. Uh, and they want to start providing value to the healthcare system. They're eager, you know, even pre-med students we have doing this kind of work, they're ready to go. And so that's some of the creativity is operationalizing these. There's actually 1 million of these students across the country, across all disciplines. Let's get them going. Let's get them recruited, trained, managed to provide value so that our licensed clinicians, probably many of your listeners can operate at the top of their licensure. And that they're not spending time uh, doing a lot of this outreach, maybe or follow up, like you know, think about post, you know, test result follow up or negative test results. Like we could take that off the the, like, the clinicians' plates. They can become far more efficient, and the students get to learn. And we're charging the healthcare systems uh, at a savings, um, and so that's sort of the win win win. But that's really the why. the The why now is huge shortage and students' uh, total lack of opportunities for the students. So it's a it's a nice marriage. That's interesting. And my assumption is that the students can't get any um, like college credit or credit for a clinical experience because this is completely separate from the schools. The schools aren't um, contracting with you to provide clinical experiences for students. Yeah, not yet. Uh, We have those requests are coming in almost daily at this point. We are talking to some of the associations about what's the process to get going. But, you know, we sort of just started. Uh, and so we really want to do that. I think from an impact perspective, which is big for us, um, we're very much focused on impact. One of the best ways we can help the healthcare, healthcare, the U.S. healthcare system is in the acceleration of the production of clinicians. And if, and if a solution like ours that's remote and the students uh, have access to it and we can get a high volume of these positions, if we were able to provide some clinical rotation type hours through our work, wow, imagine imagine the impact we can make. So it's something we're certainly working on. I think it's going to be quite a path, um, mm-hmm. but we do have some schools um, that are interested 
in, in holding our hands sort of through that process, we can get that going. It wouldn't necessarily impact the volume of student. Well, it probably would impact the number of students who are interested, but that number is already so high that we just, we don't have yet the volume of clients to, to, to even onboard all the students that have applied. Right. And I would venture a guess that prior to the pandemic, when telehealth kind of really took hold, I mean, there was telehealth before the pandemic struck, but Mm -hmm. it's become really kind of like a staple of healthcare delivery now. And I think patients have really gotten on board with the fact that they can experience certain level of quality care over the phone or over a video call. So do you feel like now is also the time because telehealth has been embraced across the board on on a certain level? Yeah, I think it certainly helps. It's it's been a big accelerant if you will. So the world has become so comfortable um with this kind of remote concept and so mm-hmm. even the students now it's like wow, if I don't you know, if I don't need to be in person and if a lot of these clinical jobs in the future might also be remote, which there's plenty of those, let's learn that skill set. Let's learn how to pro- how to provide telephonic and telehealth as a student so that when I enter the, the workforce, I have some of those uh, skill sets. So it, it, it certainly helps with the, I guess, acceptance rate of the client to think through what that looks like. We also focus as far as a modality or as a, as a, as a, a medium for communication, we wanted to start with just the phone call. Uh, and the reason why is, is if you really want to go after the most underserved populations and regardless of age and socioeconomic kind of factors, the phone is sort of the, is the foundation, right? It's the most uh, common uh, form. So not everybody has a smartphone. Not everybody has a, uh, a computer with a camera. So we don't need to jump to that quite yet. We do do some smart text messaging just you know, before we call a patient. We text them to say, hey, you're about to get a call from us for this reason from this phone number uh, so that they don't screen the number and not answer. Uh, they at least know who it is. And that helps us a lot with answering rates. But uh, in general, the technology is very, it's very simple. It's a, it's a phone call to the patient. Um, and so we can go after everybody. Yeah. And in terms of disciplines, not the disciplines of the students who are taking part, but the disciplines of the practices that are embracing this and asking you for help from these student clinicians. Is it like, is it a preponderance of primary care providers or are you finding that there are specialties where this is really efficacious? Yeah, it's been all over. So our first three clients are going to be uh, the largest safety net hospital organization uh, in in Chicago, um, and specifically, we're taking over the uh, their diabetes uh, prevention program enrollment services. Another client is one of the largest county based healthcare systems in the country. We're going to be doing all their health risk assessments. So so those two are sort of uh, not specialty specific. It's almost more like community or population health. Uh, and then the third client is in a, uh, a Southern state, uh, more, much more rural in the Appalachia uh, region. And we um, will be doing, uh, hopefully in February, for their accountable care organization, which is, is sort of like the payer side of, their, of the health system. It's a health system. We'll be doing medication adherence with third-year pharmacy students. So uh, quite the variety <laughs> in our first, yeah. first big three here. And then when you look at our pipeline, it's everything from you know a top five national healthcare system by by number of hospitals over 140 hospitals, potentially doing some pilots there. The largest provider slash payer organization in the country. There's some talk about pilots there, so those are both really unique. Yeah, it's been it's been really fun to see all the different ways we can utilize this. I think time will tell. So that once we have, you know, a much higher N, we can start talking like statistically, what is our highest kind of percent per client type, but uh, just a little early for that. Yeah, it's interesting, the notion of payers, you know, insurers wanting to take this on because insurers are more and more hiring remote nurse case managers, nurses who do medication adherence, and maybe there's like a congestive heart failure program or a diabetes adherence program or renal failure, et cetera. Yeah. Cardiac rehab, maybe. So one question I could hear just like in the ethers is, you know how 
there's been this concern voiced over the years, like are robots coming to take our jobs, right? <laughs> so, so that continues to come up around AI and you know all that kind of stuff, automation. So, are you hearing any concerns being voiced, or could you foresee concerns of licensed providers saying, "Wait a second, you're giving away jobs that we could have." that are being taken by these students who you can pay less? Like, is that something that you're you're ready to answer when people ask that question or is it a question being asked? Oh yeah, I, so the question's not being asked, but I we are ready to answer. And, and I think on the front end, there's so much AI and I'm sure a lot of people uh, on, this, on this podcast listening, um, have seen tons of AI and like smart text messaging or, or robo calling going on. But like, I think, look, I, I've worked with lots of clinicians over my career at, at the University of Chicago and Northwestern and, uh, and at Rush. And I think the reality is that healthcare is human. Like bottom line, I think people can try until they're blue in the face to try to replace a nurse. And it, there's just something about a nurse and the training that they've had and, and the way that they provide value to the healthcare ecosystem. You can't replace them, not today, <laughs> at least with mm-hmm. some sort of algorithm. Uh, there's too many nuances. Not only that, I think people build AI and all this artificial stuff for the white affluent sort of class, right? People that have perfect eyesight can read a text message and they're they're used to that stuff. But the reality is this, the sickest, most underserved populations in this country, I'd say you have a long time, very, very long time before artificial systems can replace some of the brilliance that that nursing does and it's it's sort of it's a little ig- uh, uh, ignorant to me some of these organizations just trying to displace that uh, I do applaud the effort I think you know if that not to replace people but the idea of just forwarding technology is you know yeah. uh, usually could be great there's a there's a the last thing I'll say about that is there's a company called Noom a lot of people know about it. it's a it's a wellness app mm-hmm. it's a five billion dollar company now and the founder has a very famous quote, but he basically what he's saying is they tried to do AI coaching. They had the smartest people in the in Silicon Valley, more money than, than you, they knew what to do with, and they couldn't solve it. It wasn't until they put a human being, a wellness coach, a clinician, into the loop that they actually saw success and became big. The, the second question you're asking about replacing jobs or taking over jobs, the work we're doing and... Um, and I mean this in the best way possible, the work that we're doing isn't what I think licensed clinicians want to do. Mm -hmm. It's it's this high volume work that doesn't require licensure. I think Mm -hmm. everybody, everybody, even in the business world, I think everybody wants to operate at the top of their license, right? Yeah. They, 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 they want to, they, they're licensed to, to do catheters. They're licensed to have a conversation with the patient in person and provide actual like, like direct patient care. They don't, they probably don't want to be enrolling patients into diabetes programs. They might want to provide the diabetes prevention training to the patient, but the enrollment side, whereas a student who has no experience, they find a lot of value in that. And again, they're not doing it forever. They're doing Mm -hmm. it with us for, you know, 90 days to maybe one year or two years with us. Uh, They're getting a ton of experience. They're making great money and they're going to move on. And I think when they become a licensed clinician, they're going to want to operate at the top of their license. Mm -hmm. So, so let us do this work for you. (laughs) So, so you can go and enjoy your, your job, I think is, is sort of some of the the strategy here. I like that. I expected an answer sort of like that. And I think clinicians do want to practice at the top of their license. They don't necessarily want to do the stuff on the lower end of the ladder because people who are not licensed can do that kind of work like medical assistants. And if you have students who are hungry for any kind of patient interaction and experience that they can build a resume with, I think all the better for everyone. So when we, when we come back from the break, I want to talk about your history and, you know, where you're coming from, because you said you are um, coming from healthcare and the educational academic world. So I'd like to talk about how you got to where you are. And also I want to talk about grapefruit health and sort of where the vision came from and why even you call it grapefruit health. So when we come back from the break, I'd like to dig into that and some other questions. So hang in there with us. We'll be right back for the second half of the Nurse Keith Show, episode 409 with Eric Alvarez, the CEO and founder 
of Grapefruit Health. And welcome back to the second half of the episode. We're here again with friend of the pod and my new friend and colleague, Eric Alvarez. He's the CEO and founder of Grapefruit Health. And Eric, before the break, we were talking about your inspiration for this and the millions and millions of providers that we're short of and will continue to find shortages all around the country of nurses doctors, physical therapists, I mean, all sorts of providers that we are missing. And there's no end in sight in terms of those shortages. And Grapefruit Health was founded to try to mitigate some of those shortages and provide that kind of support. And it sounds like you have organizations and even payers, you know, healthcare insurers, who are looking at this and saying, hey, this could actually be a really good use of our of our money to help our patients be more successful. So one of the questions I have for you is, you said that you actually work in academia. Um, tell us a little bit about what you do in that particular aspect of your career. Yeah, um, so I, I have two, two roles. One, is I'm adjunct faculty at, at Rush University, which is where I got my, my MHA from. It's a, it's a great top five uh, program. And in that role, I do some value-based care, uh, ad hoc uh, education and, and kind of jump into some classes. I'm a little bit of the de facto entrepreneur innovation person sort of for the, that program in a, in a lot of ways. And so a lot of students that are interested in, in that kind of work, I help guide them through that ecosystem because I have a, a, a big background at this point in, in uh, healthcare innovation. And then my second role is at SIU, uh, Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. Also my undergraduate alma mater, uh, alma mater that I went to after the military, I sit on the uh, College of Health and human sciences, the advisory board down there. Um, and that's been very fruitful. Uh, some of those, they just started a nursing program down there as well. And so some of those students actually are, are uh, going to be working with us at Grapefruit Health. Oh, awesome. So MHA is Master's in Healthcare Administration for those who didn't recognize that particular acronym. And you said the military, you served in the U.S. Air Force during Operation Iraqi Freedom. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. I was a long, long title, but aviation, electrical and environmental systems uh, specialist on on an aircraft called the C-5, which is the the largest in the U.S. Air Force fleet. It's a massive, massive uh, cargo plane. Some of the if you ever seen uh, the pictures of like a space shuttle flying on on a plane, that's yeah. the C five. That's the C five. It's it's that large. Oh, I um, see. Oh, yeah. I've seen the space shuttle piggybacked on. Yeah. A, a vehicle like that. Yeah. Um, so, and you have a bachelor's in aviation management. Yeah. So kind of interesting path. Um, I'll try to keep it short, but basically after, after the military studied aviation management with a minor in speech at SIU, uh, you know, great experience, played rugby down there and studied abroad, et cetera. And, and graduated in 08, which was not a great time for the economy, um, at the time and was, um, uh, dating someone at the time who was at Millican Nursing School in Decatur, Illinois. Um, so central Illinois, basically center of the state and went there um, and we we sort of lived together. And there was sort of my first kind of uh, foray into healthcare. I had some friends actually just really coincidentally serendipitous, I guess, that were at in the Rush program. And it sounded really neat. I was like, wow, I can help people. I love leadership. Um, healthcare is, you know, by GDP, it's a large industry with lots of really fascinating elements to it. I'm going to do some research. And, and when I did that, it was uh, part of it. Also, right before I moved to Mil uh, to Decatur, I'd ridden my bicycle um, across the country <laughs> with a couple of buddies. We lived in tents for like three months. Wow. Um, and um, it was during that time we were actually riding for charity. It was for a, an African, uh, an AIDS foundation for, for people with AIDS in Africa. Um, and, um, it felt really good to just kind of wake up and ride knowing you're helping people sort of thing. And so 
was like, wow, how do we do this? You know, because aviation is a great industry too. And I think you can help a lot of people, but maybe not as directly as, as healthcare. Um, and mm-hmm. I knew I wasn't going to be, I don't have the hands-on clinical, clinician. Uh, uh, I, I have all the respect for those people in the world. I don't know how they do it. Uh, hands-on clinicians, nurses, et cetera. So, uh, so the opportunity for me to get in was really on the administration side. I see. Well, we need people who are enlightened administrators and leaders. And speaking of being an enlightened leader, so Eric, most recently you were named a top 100 rising Latinx founder. And what organization um, bestowed upon you that that um, honor? Yeah. And, you know, I think there's a lot of lists out there. And obviously we were very uh, grateful for that and very honored uh, uh, for that. And so it's actually a, an investment firm on the West Coast uh, called Insigno Ventures, and they invest in um, typically founders that have some sort of Latinx connection. So I am Latinx, and um, we we got connected, and, and they liked what we were doing. And out of all the different pools, probably several thousand different uh, founders across the country, we were fortunate enough to, to get named in the top 100, I think, because of our momentum and the general mission of what we were trying to accomplish uh, was unique and novel enough uh, that they found it exciting to put us on that list. So, so we were very much, very much honored uh, to be on that. Yeah, and you were named Distinguished Alumni of the Year from your master's program at Rush. So, you've gotten some accolades here, and and you know, just talking a little bit more about healthcare in general. You also were involved in healthcare technology in a startup. You were the chief operations officer and that was Fibroblast, which I think is a really interesting company name. Um, (laughs) And this was EMR related, right? So you were involved in that end of the healthcare realm. Yeah. So yeah, I joined, I, when I left uh, my, my hospital administration world, I became the first employee and maybe by uh, default chief operating officer, but it, I think I kind of earned it over time maybe. Um, but I was employee number one. It was a referral management SaaS solution or uh, SaaS is an, is an acronym for software as a service. So oh. think of it as a, think of it as like a web portal for all your referral management needs. Yeah. So if you, a patient goes to see a primary care doctor has chest pain, our software would tell you who's the best cardiologist for that patient based on mm-hmm. um, location, insurances, sub, you know, not all cardiologists are the same, right? Some see general cardiology, some see, uh, you know, different types of heart disease or, you know, uh, uh, et cetera. So, um, we grew that to over, uh, over five years. Um, and that was acquired by Cerner in the year 20, 2020. We, and to your question about EMRs, we did integrate with all the major EMRs. I've had been fortunate enough to get to speak at the Epic conference. Um, Epic, the EMR, um, got to speak yeah. at the conference there on, on, on some of the work that we were doing. And even though Cerner was the one that acquired us, <laughs> but mm-hmm. but nonetheless, great experience. Yeah, and most listeners will be uh, have experience or have heard of either Epic or Cerner, either at their workplace or or they've had other colleagues who've been involved in that on some level. There's lots of EMRs out there, but Cerner, Meditech. Epic, those are sort of the big players these days. And you've even been a hospital administrator and you've led clinical and non-clinical teams and specialty service lines like cardiovascular surgery and urology, et cetera. So you've been steeped in this healthcare world from that other side, the non-clinical side. And getting back to Grapefruit Health, I wanted to ask, um, you know, how do you how do you um elicit I guess is the right word, the trust of either medical providers or payors who are using you. How do you get their trust that this service and bringing students into the fold and having them provide some of these services that they feel like, oh yeah, we can we can place our trust in Grapefruit Health that that these needs are going to be met and it's going to be done well. Yeah, it's a great, great question. It's something we deal with all of the time. So I'm really glad you asked. And so I, I think it's pretty subjective. It's pretty subjective. It's also pretty situational, really. Mm-hmm. And so I think off the bat, one way to look at what we're doing is is really a uh, sort of a call center function just with some major 
advantages. We can talk about the student recruitment side of this whole thing as well and why clients are excited about that. But but the idea um, is that if these were not students, if I just said that I was a call center and we just hire anybody and then we train them like a you know, fill in the blank call center, mm-hmm. um, we probably wouldn't get as much like questions about it, right? But because it's students, even though they are adult aged students, they could be, they, for whatever reason, that kind of triggers some of that, mm, how do you manage these kind of things? So I would first of all say that I think a clinical student is actually has, is actually maybe performs better than, than a general staff person. The reason why is first of all, clinical programs are really hard to get into. So the nature of these folks, um, tend to be of high caliber. Uh, secondly, they have the interest, motivation, and drive, right? They want this experience in healthcare. So they're not just clocking in and out for a paycheck. They're, they're, they're like really trying to learn. There's actually some research on here, especially around medication adherence and pharmacy students. The pharmacy students, because they're in that student mindset, they're just being so careful mm-hmm. uh, on there. And even though they have less you know, actual repetitions, they, they do perform really well uh, in that in that role. And so we we try to highlight some of these things for, for, for some of our clients. If I'm talking to a clinical person, so it's a, a licensed clinician that's, that holds a leadership role, they instantly get it because they're typically working with students in some capacity already. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking to an investor who might be industry agnostic, they're like, you can't use students for this. And, and what we tell them actually there's a lot of students engaged across healthcare systems uh, in big ways. Um, what we're doing is we're just taking a different approach to it and, and going national and these kind of things. And so we we go through that. The last thing I'll say is that we then also describe our quality process. So just like any other call center pro, uh, a mechanism, we record every phone call. We train them. HIPAA compl- they're all got to have be HIPAA compliant background checks. Uh, sexual harassment training, therapeutic communication, motivational interview training, task-based training. And then as we listen to these phone calls, if students are performing uh, not to the level that we need them to, we we remove, we pull them down. They have to go through additional training with us one-on-one, which is great. This is the whole point. We want to make, the, the whole point is that they're learning, right? That they're, they're the whole, our mantra is like, learn, learn while you earn, uh, or you could say earn while you learn, whatever. But it's, um, that's how we kind of do it. And so far in, in a sale, it's never been uh, a stopper, mm-hmm. uh, especially once there's at least one clinical person in the room. They say, no, no, look, clinical students are actually really strong. They're great. This is as long as somebody's supervising them, managing them and training them appropriately. I'd, I'd almost rather I'd rather work with them than a general, you know, call it gig economy worker or something of that nature. Right. And this is a different type of gig economy. Obviously, it's more specialized. It's healthcare related, right? Um, Exactly. Not to cast aspersions on people who drive for Lyft and Uber and all the other gig economies. I mean, TaskRabbit. I mean, they're all really important. And service industries are what make the world go round to, you know, an enormous extent. And healthcare is a service uh, industry. And you could think about it from a clinician's point of view. It's like, if a student is a, say, a second semester nursing student, right, and we are trusting them to come out to a hospital unit and talk with families and talk with patients and start to perform more and more tasks and eventually, like, actually dispense medication or do a venipuncture or do a catheterization or clean a central line access point. You know, so we are trusting students to do more and more. So it it, it makes sense to me. I'm just I'm I'm asking these questions because I'm sure these are the questions that come up in your conversations and you're trying to sell something that I think is highly valuable. And I'm also curious what do nursing schools, medical schools, pharmacy programs, what did they say about it? Like, what did they think that this is bringing to, let's say, the quality of their students' experience during school? Like, how does this benefit the students vis-a-vis the programs? They are knocking down the door. I really yeah, mean that. It's it's they are they're so the the programs themselves are getting a lot of pressure from the students because the frustration from the students, especially in like and I won't even call it rule. I'll just say if you are in a part of the country that only has one health system or mm-hmm. and then some affiliate medical groups or something of that nature, it can be really hard to get the experience that you want, even summer internships, fill in the blank. And so yeah. they're going to their program saying, what are you doing for us? 
uh, to get these experiences. And so some of these students are actually flying around the country and spending three months in different cities to get. And so it's, it's expensive for them uh, to do that work. And so when the, when the programs hear about it, sometimes the calls are 10 minutes long with these programs. They say, send us the link. We will forward it to our students immediately. Mm -hmm. And then we get flooded uh, with applications. And so we have to be careful with, with that. Um, and we've actually we've actually been kind of forced in some ways to to not go after the largest nursing programs quite yet um, because of the volume of interest. So as we grow as a company and have more demand from our clients, um, mm -hmm. we will bring on more students. And that's the that's the vision is to grow that way. That makes a lot of sense, right? So there's more there's a little bit of an imbalance in terms of interest from the students in the schools as compared to the clinical operations that you're bringing on board who actually need that help. And I'm sure that's going to balance out, you know, as yeah. this moves forward. And I just have to ask, um, why Grapefruit Health? Like, where does that name come from? Yeah, it's a great question. I'll, I'll be completely transparent. There's two ways it happened. So first, at the beginning of our, of our model was to go after really senior isolation and loneliness. It was to utilize clinical students, uh, connect them with seniors living in isolation, and they would speak with the same patient every week uh, for 30 minutes to an hour, track some data, uh, and socialize, right? And, and, you know, the statistics out there are overwhelming. One in four people over the age of 65 today live in isolation, major driver of dementia, heart disease. And as a veteran and just a patriot, I, it, it bothers me that in America, we have those statistics. It's completely doesn't make sense. And we have all these students wanting to learn. Let's match them up. And, and we've just expanded that use case. That's still very much a use case for us. And so when we think of of active, and maybe this is cinema or the media, but when I think of like an active senior, I think of them, grapefruits are, are very popular, like in that age group. I think a lot of people in that in that generation grew up with grapefruits. And so I've always just had this vision of, of the sun coming through the window and somebody eating a grapefruit. And so that's mm -hmm. kind of where it started. And now that we're beyond that, sort of the now reason uh, why we're called Grapefruit Health is it's really our fruit analogy, I guess, for healthcare. Healthcare is mm -hmm. a big uh, you know, pain in the butt. <laughs> it's not a, it's not an apple. You can't just pick up healthcare and rub it on your shoulder and take a bite. It's a, it's a grapefruit. You have a, you know, you need a knife, you cut it in half. It's segmented. You need a spoon then you need salt and sugar. Uh, and you know, hopefully it's ripe and it's the right, you know, so it's, it's, it's that kind of challenge. Uh, right. And then the last reason is because the URL was available. <laughs> so I see. Grapefruit, yeah. Grapefruit.health was uh, available. Uh, That's so, really anyway. interesting. Well, I've got a grapefruit <laughs> in my kitchen and I even have one of those, I guess you'd call it old fashioned grapefruit spoons. It's like a yes. spoon with the serrated edge. Yeah. Yeah. My grandma yeah. had one. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And I like that idea of salt and sugar. I'm gonna have to try that. And um, yeah. it's like people <laughs> who put salt on their watermelon, you know, just kind of like, the, yeah, the, that's me. <laughs> the engine of flavor. Yeah. Anyway, that's a, a culinary um, digression. But so yeah. it's it's grapefruit.health. And on LinkedIn, you are grapefruit-health. And are you going to be active on any other social media platforms? I know you're you're in the startup phase. Uh, we're not. We find um, LinkedIn to really be the, the best. I think if we ever if we ever expanded, we would go to um We'd go over to Twitter, but yeah, we're Grapefruit Health. Grapefruit Health. There's another uh, organization. Actually, they just shut down, but it's called Grapefruit. And sometimes people go towards that, but we're uh, we're Grapefruit Health. Okay. Yeah, LinkedIn, I think, is a good place for an organization like yours, especially. I, that's that's where people hang out for professional networking, and I I appreciate you kind of putting your putting your eggs in the LinkedIn basket. I think that's smart. So. Thank you. Before we close, and there's there's a lot more we could talk about, and we'll have to maybe circle back in a year and talk about how much you've grown. So we'll yeah, you know that'd be great. We'll stay in each other's radar. But I have four quick kind of lightning round questions for you that I ask all my guests. Are you game? I'm game. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. the first question is: How do you, Eric, define success, either personally and or professionally? I, I think um, 
Wow, great question. I should have listened to uh, I should have got this this list in my head already. Uh-huh. Um, I think for me, success is I, I've had jobs before in the past. I'll I'll, I'll say professionally. Um, I think I've had roles in the past where uh, maybe compensation was great, but the impact was really minimal, mm-hmm. and that's not exciting to me. So I think um, success for me professionally is building. I've had a management job. Like when I say management, I mean like maintenance jobs where you're taking over a group or a, a division of surgery, let's say, and you're just maintaining it. I love to build, even in my free time, I have a lot of hobbies we can talk about another time, but it's, I love to build. And so as long as I'm building and making a positive impact and that there's an opportunity to, to earn uh, income, great incomes and uh, you know, make some friends along the way, I think that's really it. I don't, I don't uh, overcomplicate it, but. I like that. And for some reason you said you have hobbies and I just had this, I had this image in my mind of you building your own bicycle. I don't know why. <laughs> hey, no, that's not too far off. I restored a, I, I bought a 1978 KZ650. It's a very common motorcycle, very, just for a couple hundred dollars on, on Facebook marketplace. And I, I actually rebuilt it into something called a cafe racer. Wow. Um, so close. Me, yeah, you were. Yeah. Yeah. Two wheels. Like I was like, <laughs> I felt it. I felt the two wheel energy. There you <laughs> um, go. Okay. Second question. Could you name or maybe just describe a person who's inspired you in the course of your life and they can be living or dead. It could be a super famous person who you admire, or maybe someone none of us have ever met before. Who's just special to you. Gosh, I don't want to say Elon Musk. I feel like that's a little cheesy, especially with some of the recent, uh, Oh my gosh. Stuff. But I, I do, I do admire his ability to say, I'm going to build a rocket company. And that's just like, absolutely crazy. How are you going to do that? It's going to take 20 years. And it did take a long time. And he still kind of went through it. I'm going to say, I'm going to pick a, a healthcare name. There's somebody in, in the healthcare ecosystem in the world called his name is Glenn Tolman. Hmm. Uh, and he's really been a, a, not a very like, uh, frivolous or like, he doesn't do a ton of social media. He doesn't do a lot of that kind of stuff, but anything he touches sort of, you know, turns to gold in healthcare. And so he might, you might've heard of a company called Livongo. Um, he was the CEO of all scripts, um, and then oh, yeah. became the CEO of, of Livongo. And he just has this great innovation path and, and he's kind of a no BS guy. He just puts his head down. They come up with a vision. He's got a great team around him that he's kind of brought across these companies. He has a he always has a great vision or a problem he wants to solve, whether it be diabetes or whatever, whatever and then just goes all in hard, puts a lot of his own money into it and, and just does it. And um, you don't see that a lot. Usually people that do that then get on this like speaker, you know, they they become some sort of, you know, they start these venture capital funds, et cetera. And he does have, he does do investments, but he just, he kind of does everything from like behind the scenes. I just admire him mm-hmm. a lot. He, I think he's made a big, and he's a, you know, he's a Chicago person. He, he's just, he's made a big uh, impact in the healthcare world. Yeah. So you like, you admire people who kind of like have an idea, have a vision and they operationalize it basically. Yeah. Not just, not just talk, right. We all know yeah. talkers in our life, but people that are doers. Make it happen. Yeah. Beyond reason. Right. Yeah. Regardless of the challenges, like it's going to happen. And so it's just cool. I, I hope I want to be, I want people to think of me like that someday. I hope. I think they probably already do. Okay. So <laughs> the, the penultimate question, is there a book or a movie and it doesn't have to be a like total favorite, but just one that's had an impact on the way you think, or maybe the l- way you live your life. I am a big reader. I'm going to go with, uh, there's a book called the power of one. Uh, and I actually read it just at a very like transformational point in my life. I was on that bicycle trip across the country. Hmm. Um, it's the, it's called the power of one. It's, it's a true story. It's called the, the true story of South Africa. And it follows this kid named PK, um, at a time in, in during the apartheid. And it's a really fascinating book, but this kid is, goes through all of these wild stories, but it ties in the history of South Africa to it. And if you, if you, if you think about, it, I love, I read mostly nonfiction, but fiction is actually my preference. Um, and so if you think about like the Ken Follett of the world, like historical fiction, mm-hmm. this is very much that in the uh, set in South Africa and brings it all in. It's it's a really good book. And the, I think they made it into a movie. I haven't seen the movie, but the the book I, I really recommend. Um, yeah, it's just a great tale. It's a good a tale mm-hmm. and, and it has a great ending. Yeah, thank you. Okay, last question. If you were elected king of the world in a world where we actually elected sovereigns, um, what's one of the first things you'd want to do 
just to improve the lives of your subjects, of the people around you? If you could, uh, you had ultimate power, like what would you want to make better for people? I, I think, oh, this is really hard, but I think what I would do is work on, uh, I think we're, we're kind of coming out the worst side of this as, as a nation for sure, but maybe as a broader developed world problem where we have a lot of division, maybe more mm -hmm. divided than ever before. I do feel like things are becoming a little more purple. Um, right. We're moving in some, some of those, we're making, um, concessions, I think on both sides. And so what I would want to do as a leader would be to not allow some of this, uh, rhetoric that's, you know, a lot of times false or the purpose of the rhetoric is to divide us. I would love to bring us all back together. The, the, the few last past, the, the past few years of this division have been hard on, on me and my family. And I know a lot of other families that has been as too, at a minimum, it's been, it's been frustrating, um, mm. And I, and I do think voters are starting to reward some some of the less uh, dividing, uh, the, the, the rhetoric that's less uh, divisional. And so if I was a world leader, I don't know how, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I would love to to for, to, to um, uh, influence uh, some of that dialogue and that it's more let's focus on the things we have in common, because I think mm -hmm. there's a lot more in common than than we all than we all hear. And uh, that's yeah. unfortunate. I like that. And yeah, I wasn't asking for the how, I was just asking for like what you would oh. want to do. And I think that's yeah. a really nice vision because the how could be a whole podcast episode. <laughs> and, um, yeah. But I think that is a lovely vision. And I think we're all pretty tired of of divisions and it happens in healthcare, happens in politics, happens in race relations. I mean, it's everywhere. So I, yeah. I appreciate that. And Eric, you're you're a very inspirational person. And um, I really appreciate that we connected. And and I would like to have you back, you know, like say in a year and talk about like how grapefruits grown. So I'd I'd love it if you'd agree to come back. Yes, we would we would be honored. Yes, please. Um, we would love to do that. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you so, so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nurse Keith Show. And remember, the show notes will be at nursekeith.com or just go to whatever app where you're listening. You'll find them there. And remember, hit up www.grapefruit.health to learn all about Eric and his really, really inspiring company. If you need personalized holistic career coaching to uplift your nursing and healthcare career, Look no further than Nurse Keith Coaching. And remember, you can get a 10% discount on your first coaching package if you mention the show. And remember, rnegade.pro, R-N-E-G-A-D-E.pro, where you can earn CEUs for listening to podcasts. Why not? You're listening anyway. We are a proud member of the Health Podcast Network, where you can find us at healthpodcastnetwork.com. We're produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting, and Mark Cappy Spiesen is our social media ringmaster and newsletter wrangler. My gratitude always to Rob and Mark. Before we say goodbye, I'll leave you with this quote by the musician Robert Fripp. May my living honor my parents. May my living repay the debt of my existence. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico, and my new friend and colleague and friend of the pod, Eric Alvarez of Grapefruit Health, saying Arrivederci from Chicago, Illinois. Chicago, Illinois. Thank you so much, Eric. Thanks to you for doing great work in the world. Thank you all for listening, and we will catch you on the proverbial flip side.